Bienvenidos and welcome to another episode of 90% Mental Ultra Distance Paddling Adventures. I am back in beautiful Baja Sur, Mexico for the rest of 2022. I spent the last few months up in the States running a fishing tournament on Oahu and got the opportunity to knock off one of my personal bucket list races in the beautiful Adirondacks for the 90 miler as well as creating a social media story for the fourth annual Great Alabama 650, which by the way, signups for the fifth annual AL 650 are opening up on November 1st. So make sure you get on that. It's a race you don't want to miss. While all that was going on, my friend Cyril Deramo was busy paddling 2000 nautical miles across the mid Pacific ocean. I spoke with him on episode 7 in season 1 about his second solo crossing attempt, and I'm excited to be sitting here and say he accomplished his dreams. It is so inspiring to have heard all the work and dedication that was being put into this solo journey, and then watching him accomplish it. I hope you all enjoy our conversation and that it inspires you to find grit and determination in your next paddling endeavor. Wow, you're a pro. Look at that microphone. Oh my gosh. It's because I don't know what I'm doing. It's not because I'm a pro. It's because I can't <laughs> figure out if I don't have this microphone, is it going to pick up my voice as good? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I am completely jet lagged, so you'll have to excuse me. I'm just rolling out of bed, ready to do this. Yeah, I mean, same thing. You're the one who decided to do it at 8 a.m., so... <laughs> <laughs> It's because I'm leaving to Mexico tomorrow. So I was like, okay, I need to do, um, I need to meet with you in the morning so that I have all day to kind of get yeah, ready. Where are you now? I'm back in Oregon. This is my father's um, fly fishing dungeon down here that okay. he no longer uses, but I'm like obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a man cave where it's really silent, perfect. For oh my fun. God, you should see it. I wish I could do like a 360 of it because it's just incredible. He's got all this stuff from, you know, like garage sales and anything that has a fish on it or has to do with fly fishing, it's in this room. There's a lot of vintage. It's really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I got to say, I'm glad that I see your neck that is bare. And I don't, I, for <laughs> second, I thought that tattoo was real. I said, no, what did you do that? <laughs> then I, I seen, and I looked like, this has been by hand. There's no way. I mean, these lines are not even straight. no the funny story about that is that um the staff and i were in this little like podunk town and we were getting this like famous chicken sandwich and they had one of those coin machines where you could get the tattoos you put a quarter in so it's like oh let's all get a tattoo and then i got the sailor one and they're like you should put it on your neck and everyone thought it was real But the funny story about that is like towards the end, we actually all went and got real tattoos. Oh, which one did you get? Um, I got, I'll show you right now. You'll like this one. Can you see that? Oh, it's in the microphone. It's right on the microphone. Ugh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, it says Ola i Kawai, which means water is life in Hawaiian. It's one of my favorite Hawaiian proverbs. So, yeah, and I love it because it's when I put my arm down, it's hidden like under there. Yeah. yeah, So, yeah, I didn't didn't get any neck tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) So did you have a good time at the Alabama? It was good. I mean, it's like a 10 day nonstop work. 
It is. Yeah. Towards the end, people started to get more spread out. So it was a little bit more relaxing. We got, um, an Airbnb in Fort Morgan and were able to kind of rest a bit more, but yeah, the first seven days was like, Oh my goodness. And especially being on media, I wanted to make sure that I get everyone and everyone feels, you know, inclusive. And so I'm waking up at three in the morning, then five in the morning, then I'm driving back and forth, trying to get people coming out at different areas. Um, And like I said, once you get into the Delta and the Bay, it's kind of harder to predict where people are going to be. Whereas if you're at the portages, you know, okay, they have to stop here. So yeah, it was, but it was so much fun and, um, I really enjoy it. I love social media, um, you know, looking and sharing and all that stuff. So it was right up my alley. (laughs) Yeah. You did a good job. We followed it all. Thank you. Sally won again, huh? Wow, she's amazing. she did. I am, and this is so funny. It's I I teased her because part of the reason I chose to do be on staff was because I wanted to follow Sally and see like just see you know what she does that just makes her so amazing. And I mean, on top of her just being an amazing athlete and having that that mental flexibility that we talk about. Um, She's just, you know, she does things that, or her crew rather, I should say, does things that can definitely uh, limit the amount of time that you're on land and get getting your butt back in the boat. So it was impressive. And Bobby too. Transition, transition is yeah. Good. The transition, it's all in the transition. I mean, they had they have it down. So, and I'm yeah. actually going to do a podcast with Mike Malone and Joe. Uh, Mike Malone is her husband and support crew. They've supported her through every race. And they're a funny bunch. It's going to be a really, I might have to um, click explicit. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're some characters for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you look like an ocean man. Yeah. I'm a Viking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Into a Viking. (laughs) Oh, you know, I'm keeping the beard a little bit because I think the moment I'll kind of shave it, it will be totally over. (laughs) And and I'm I'm liking it. It's it's a different look, and why not? You know, I like it too. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That you know, once you once you shave it, it'll feel like it's all over. So, have yeah. you gotten your land legs back? Oh yeah, yeah. That was only 24 hours. Um, okay. Land legs. It's just you know getting the balance back. The the brain adjusted very fast, but uh, I mean it's the other part of the brain that is you know going back to land. Okay, what do I do now? That that was. Uh, it's not difficult, but it's 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 like coming back to the real world. Like your ninety days, where the only thing that matters is it's that day, whatever that day is, and deal. It. The future doesn't matter, the past doesn't matter, and then suddenly you come back. And obviously, you know, I try to capitalize on the uh, on the fact that they had some attention from the media and I to share the the passion. So I've been working really hard, actually, doing a lot of interviews and. And it's fun, you know, every journalist has a different perspective and different audience. So uh, trying to match, you know, the discourse with wh- whatever they want to get out of you is, is really interesting. Yeah, I see you've been really busy, kind of, you don't done a little bit of traveling. Uh, were you on the on the East Coast? Yeah, I was in North Carolina and Wisconsin with my sponsor, Standard Process. And what we did with them is, you know, they're a supplement company. so. Before we left, we did one day, a lot of tests, um, VO2 max, grip, strength of the leg, um, and blood test as well. Um, and, you know, bone density ratio, BMI, so uh, 
body mass index, the ratio of fat and, and, and muscles. And, and we wanted to do the post crossing to see how much we had lost. And I'm going to post today my, my loss. It's, it's quite incredible. I've lost 40% on my leg strength uh, compared to before. Um, VO2 max, I've lost uh, about 20% of my lung capacity and 20% uh, of my overall power. Uh, anaerobic and aerobic, so it's it's huge the lots that I have, uh, but uh, it's just because you know I've been like a diesel motor for 30 days. You know I haven't stood up, so all the muscles and stability um, joints and, and that were for walking, you know I just lost that. So if you do a, you know, a leg press, of course I'm gonna be less. Um, but he said, you know, yeah, because your heart was at 85, 90. Uh, BPM maximum for 12 hours a day, then your body just adapt, adapts to that. And it says, I just have to do uh, high intensity interval trainings and some races for the next three months, and I'll get back to the, the testing. In fact, we'll go back to the NIC. So it's a nutrition innovation center of the, the company, and we'll do the test all over again. Uh, so the next four months will be uh, crucial for me to recuperate. That's the recovery. You know, I'm I'm 46, and if I want to keep doing it, adventures like that, you know, I, I've lost 20 pounds, and that's a lot of muscles um, that I need to recover. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be important for me. I think that's a really important thing that you point out is that most people probably think, okay, you know, he's been out on the ocean for this amount of days, and, you know, he's just going to get home and just plop down and, and relax. And it's incredible what our bodies can handle and what you know, how we need to recover, but be active, that active recovery, right? Most people think yes. recovering is just laying down, relaxing, letting our body rest, but really having that active recovery so that, like you said, especially as we get older, we're able to do the things we love because we've recovered properly. So it's an interesting thing you point out. Yeah, the big mistake would be to uh, go too fast back. Um, and get injured. So the first two weeks, the doctor Aynor, who's you know a specialist in um, ultra endurance like this, like multi multi months event, said, okay, don't start running right away. Uh, you know, you got to give your joints and tendons time to recover. Even don't do not get a, a deep tissue massage because your fibers are so weak now you could even damage them. So uh, for two weeks, it was focused on eating well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, having pleasure and now I'm going back to the active active recovery and it's going to be mostly you know yoga uh, a lot of stretching um, and then starting with the, the 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 strength training but very slow you know squats very just air squats uh, like uh, with no weights and then slowly like in two weeks I'll start to add some weights and um, I'm going to give myself time because yeah that the, the worst would be getting injured um, and that's the same mentality that I had in the boat. I really didn't push my limits. To, well, I did 10 to 12 hours, but I could have done 15 the last two weeks. You know, I was on on a treadmill. It was like so fun. The the wind, the swell, and the currents were all the, together, and I was doing starting to do long mileage, and I just wanted to get home. Um, so I could have done more, and I said, no, 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 I stick to the routine. And you know, I haven't had any injury in the past 80 days. So I'm just going to get there when I get there and not get injured because that's when mistakes happen. I could twist my ankle just going in and out of the cabin and that would be over. You know, it's like so bad. So. Mm -hmm. So talking about 
you know, eating food for recovery, eating good food. I, I was, I was kind of looking cause I was bummed. I was in Hawaii at the time that you arrived, but I was on the wrong Island <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, and I was looking at your, you know, your Facebook posts and all that stuff, trying to figure out what, what you were eating and I'm thinking, okay, what's the first thing that you wanted to eat when you got out of the boat? Especially uh, being in Hawaii, because it's a different cuisine, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, at that point, it's only pleasure. It's it's the things you've cra- you crave the most, and it's not really eating well. Um, so I got a burger and fries, and I had cheese because I'm French, so I didn't have my cheese. But I got poke. I, you know, I wanted to have like, a fresh fish so good and then after it's fruits and and veggie you know anything that doesn't require you to put water on it first (laughs) and rehydrate it it was good i mean seriously like all the fruits were so good i I could eat a pineapple myself and that's because you miss it you know it's it's just if you have food that lasts for 90 days on board or even more because i had it for months before it can't be that good it can't be that healthy you know you 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 make do with with it, but um, yeah, you need your fibers, you need your your good vitamins, and you could go with supplements to uh, cope with that. But it's never the same. So how long exactly did it take you to do the crossing? Ninety one days and nine hours. So wow, it's going to be seventy days, and. I was slower than expected, uh, partly due because of the the current and the conditions this year were slow. And also, I think maybe because I left late June instead of early June, I had to wait for a right weather window. Um, And I was waiting, waiting. That was kind of stressful because I couldn't really start early July. It would have been too late. So postponing another year. Oh, my God, there's no way. So we finally decided to go on on end of June and, and that was fine. But. I arrived midpoint of the crossing in 49 days instead of the 35 that I had planned. So then it was taking care of, okay, well, how do we calculate so that I have enough food? If, if the time for the second half is the same as the first one, it would be another you know, 50, 50 days. It's, that's 100 days. But normally second half is a bit faster. Okay, let's, let's capitalize. Maybe it could be 90 days. How do I ration my food so I get to the 90 days? And I did that, you know, I I actually calculated to be able to eat my food for 95 days, but I was still slow in the second half. So then that's when I decided, okay, let's hit um, Hilo on the big island and I will save, you know, 100 nautical miles. So I, I'm shaving five days of the crossing. And that was a good decision. Um, it was fun too to arrive in Hilo. I didn't know it, never been there before. And, you know, it's, it's, much smaller than Honolulu, so it was it was fun to have locals come and and it was easy for the friends and family to come and we were all in the same spot, so it was a good decision. Yes, I I agree. I absolutely love Hilo, love it. There's a lot of good food there. It's a small town. Um, it's it's really beautiful. It reminds me a lot of Oregon actually because it rains a lot there and it's very mm-hmm. green. So it reminds me of the Pacific Northwest. So last time we talked, uh, you expressed a huge excitement for your journey and said that you felt like you've been waiting a lifetime for the day to come, um, even though you you just told us that you know you did have to wait a little bit longer than you had expected because of the weather. Uh, what was your feeling as you recall, like day one, like you started paddling away from the dock, land is getting smaller, ocean's getting bigger, and essentially you're fading away into the deep blue. 
what, what was, do you remember what that feeling was like, especially with, you know, your, your first attempt solo having to be rescued at day seven? I mean, what, what, what were those feelings going through your, your mind? Yeah. So it's actually a bit stressful the last two weeks before you take off. Um, the reason is you're waiting for the weather window. Um, and I decided actually to change from San Francisco by the Golden Gate departure to Monterey, just to have a little bit low-key departure compared to the year before, where I didn't want to have too much press. I didn't want to have TV coming in last minute. I wanted to be very intimate, so I stayed at some friend's house in Carmel Valley, and that was very family and, and relaxed, and that's what I wanted. So the feeling and the, the emotions were contained very well until I took off. Then it's very emotional when when you say goodbye to the loved ones, you know, um, I was lucky that we could have two or three chase boats following me until the moment where they turn around. And and then the feeling is, is more of a relaxed. It was, okay, now that's me and the ocean. Let's go and, and determination. And, and I, I was really going to do my best the first week. And I think the first target was to pass those six days that you were mentioning where Okay, I had been rescued for six days and that time. Okay, let's see after six first days. Let's do hard. So I, I pedaled 12 hours a day to make progress as far as I could. And I think I did pretty good until the, the weather turned again too bad. Um, but the feeling is is of of peace. Uh, you, you know, it's you do 30 miles the first day and then you don't see land that first day. You spend the first night and then that's it. You're, it's you in the ocean and for the next 90 days, you don't see any human face. That's crazy. I can't imagine. I mean, I love being alone, but I think that being, I mean, for me, the thought of being alone on land for a hundred days, you know, you've got, you've, you, you're seeing a lot of wildlife. You're hearing a lot of different sounds. I feel like when you're in the ocean and you're alone, it's different. I mean, you're, you're in a different, you're in a different realm. You're not underwater, so you're not seeing all the creatures and all those things, but yet you're still just in the middle of nowhere. So I think it's a very unique feeling being out in the ocean for as long as you were, um, as opposed to being, you know, on land. Yeah, it was one of the big questions I had for myself because I'm an extrovert. I love people. I get energized by meeting people. And I was really going out of my comfort zone by being alone. And I didn't know how I would cope with loneliness. And I was not feeling lonely whatsoever. I mean, maybe not. Because actually I was missing a lot, my friends and family and loved ones. So I guess I was crying every day, just thinking, oh my God, I want to hug them. And, and that's how it triggered my post about, you know, men and, and women being made out of love because that's that's what we need. I mean, we're craving people's relations. So in some ways I coped really well because I didn't feel stressed too much of being alone. Um, you know, I, I was with my boat. Uh, she's a, a, a person in itself, Valentin. And and then there was the birds and the, there were the waves. And you create like a relationship with the environment that is completely different. Um, you know, even the fish, like there's a mahi mahi that followed me for a day. It was my friend, like pet, pet fish. It was amazing. <laughs> and then, Everything t starts to to uh, be personalized. You you look at the sunrise and and the sun is your friend and even the clouds. Um, I can't really explain how it is to be completely unknown. Uh, uh, it's fantastic. 
Was there anything interesting that you did out there to pass the time? Like any tips and tricks? Like, you know, you watch those survival movies or read those stories about people writing the the numbers on the wall, how many days <laughs> they okay, didn't so see. One thing that is actually completely weird, but <laughs> it's starting the second half. The clouds were different and they had the shapes that would remind me of something. It was not hallucination. You know how it could be the Yukon. You look at the rocks and then you see something. This was not like that. I really thought that the clouds were looking like something. So I started to be helping St. Peter. And I, <laughs> you know, the 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 gates to paradise. Is that St. Peter? So anyway, <laughs> my thought was, okay, those are creatures and it could be animals. It could be people. It could be that are in between earth and heaven. And for some reason, they have to spend time as clouds. And at the beginning of their stay in the clouds, they you can't really make a shape of what they are. But as they spend more and more times and they're allowed to go to the to heaven, then their shape are really clear. So if I could see a frog, I can say, OK, yeah, you can go to heaven. And I was allowing them to go to heaven because they had <laughs> time in the middle world. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is so funny. And for people listening out there that have never done any sort of, you know, ultra endurance race or ultra endurance paddle or run or whatever, I mean, this this is the kind of stuff it's very common. I mean, it's 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 insane the things that our mind you know, allows us to think and see and mm-hmm. it makes it fun though, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, all day I was like, oh, a little elephant. Oh, you done your time. Okay, you can go to heaven. and then what i would do um okay so there was the waves um you know they were picking me up the swell most mostly because they my boat is 800 pounds at the beginning and you know 600 at the end but then it would pick me up i mean my speed was about 1.8 to 2 nautical miles per hour so it's a bit faster than miles per hour but when a wave would come and and pick me up uh then it would go to a, a three miles per hour and four miles per hour so when it was a three miles per hour, I would call it a three-pointer. So I would say, thanks, Steve, Steph Curry, you know, because he's such a good three-pointer. And then I would actually thank the waves that would pick me up to a four mile per hour. And literally, I had to say thank you to the, the swell that would pick me up to four, four mile per hour. Now there's one that picked me up to a 7.6. That was a record speed, and that's really fast. That was a big one. I was kind of scared of that one, but... That's another trick that I, I do. Um, <laughs> that I actually should recall now. It's kind of funny, huh? That is funny. I hope uh, Stephen Curry's listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when he was before, I would say, yeah, it's Stephen from downtown. <laughs> <laughs> he became a sports commentator out there. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. So talking about weather, uh, I know that you had a a team or rather someone who was watching the weather and kind of helping you deal with that out there. Uh, You know, I was watching, I was following along and saw some hurricanes that were kind of, to me, I didn't know if they were questionable or not that they were coming near you. But uh, how, how does that work? I mean, if there, obviously there's, you know, storms that happen out there, hurricanes approaching, it's hurricane season. Mm-hmm. Uh, how often were you communicating with your, your weather team? Um, so his name is Michel. He's in France and he's a professional weather router. So he's got all the computers and, and 
well, the data from the, the weather all around the world. And uh, he gets my position from the yellow brick, which was my tracker. And the tracker would, would give my GPS position every hour. So he would look at it. And every morning, he would send me the forecast over the next three days. Um, and the forecast, it's the wind and the direction and the strength of the wind. And he'd give me a range, you know, 14 to 16 miles an hour um, and that uh, knots. So uh, that would be for the wind. And then he would tell me the swell and the direction of the swell and the height uh, and the frequency of the waves. Right. So that's I had that for the next three days. Um, and that was also together with another information, which is the waypoint. It'll give me the latitude, longitude of where I would have to go that day. And he would calculate the drift that I would have. So he would say uh, he would, you know, in his models, he would know that the, the swell and the wind would pick, you know, bring me south. I can aim at something, but I'm crabbing to a different direction. So he would put that into his calculation and I would aim at the point. I would drift. I would not get there, but then I would end up to the point where he really wanted me to be. So, yeah, he does that. And like in the case of a, a bigger weather patterns like the hurricane, yes, there's one Estelle that was on on my way or direct directing to me. And a week before he could say, OK, Cyril, there's going to be like big winds coming. Um, we'll see. It looks like it's losing power. It might be down to a tropical storm when it hits you. And that's what it did. Uh, so for four days, I had winds between 20 to 25 uh, knots. And there's just one day when I had to stay inside the cabin and uh, put the sea anchor. Now, um, I decided to do this because if it's 25 miles an hour, it's, it's not actually not dangerous. I've paddled with 24, uh, but it was after a week where I was really tired. I didn't sleep well because of the nights that were really chaotic. Uh, and we decided with the with Dave, my land support, that you know might as well just rest. I'm not going to make a lot of progress. The wind is pushing me in the right direction, so my drift is going to be good. Might as well rest for the whole day and then paddle stronger the day after. Um, but to your question, I was always aware of what was going to come. Um, I wanted, you know, my land support is really Dave and Michelle, uh, who was dealing with this. I had two other people, uh, Ashley, my girlfriend, and and Galen that were also on. There was only four people that were texting me on a daily basis. And and they would not address anything technical. They would just cheer me on, like you've got this, you know, you you've paddled this before, you know, you've got the right gear or something like this. Just some something cheering. The technical decisions were only Dave and Michelle. You know, when we did our other podcast, we talked about you you having that issue, uh, things that make you feel like you're not in control, like when you're you know you were only ten miles offshore, waves are filling up in your cockpit, bilge pump isn't working, you had those delayed communications. I think you said for like thirty minutes at a time. Uh, did did any sort of that? happen while you were out there did you have any issues with communication with your gps any of that stuff yeah uh, so for the communication i was using a um, uh, garmin enrich and that's a satellite communication and you can text unlimited um and that worked really well just one day maybe the i think they had an issue with the satellite so it was one day with no communication in that case i had the backup which is the iridium go and uh, i could text and make phone calls so um, they also had, had issues with the yellow brick, which is the tracker, and that, uh, you know, sends my my uh, position every hour, and like for maybe 24 hours there was no position, and um, it was just a question of settings and, and no problem. But 
um, the conditions I was on my first attempt were that failed were 35 knots gusting 45 and I didn't have any of those conditions this year so I was lucky uh, but the only thing is I have to know that it could happen I think the problem was that I, I wasn't ready then to not being able to communicate so you feel like okay I'm, I'm you know it's it's danger but it's kind of like when you, you pass a car or a truck and when it's raining you know when your your windshield gets all blurred and you don't see anything for 10 seconds if you don't know that it's going to happen it could be stressful but once you've done it once or twice you know it's going to be 10 seconds you don't see it. you just keep straight and you'll be fine so it's kind of the same one day my batteries died in the middle of the night and that was a bit stressful because then i was blind to other container ships and they were they couldn't see me and you just say okay well this could happen uh, tomorrow the sun will come back and we'll charge the battery again so you um, you're more ready for that. Well, just listening to you talk about this adventure so far, uh, last time when we talked, you said you would go into this mission, you know, looking at all your mistakes as lessons learned and not as failure. And it really, to me, seems like you, you really put yourself in that headspace. I mean, you seem very confident after, but even during, during this adventure, you, you seemed very in control and you seem to know that you can't always control. You can't always control, even though you're in control, it's not that you're in control of the situation. You're in control of your emotions and how you're reacting to certain things. So it feels like you really went into this with a strong sense of uh, what you discussed with me last time, the mental flexibility, not just yeah. being, you know, mentally tough, but allowing yourself to be mentally flexible for when problems do arise. Yeah. Um, I'm kudos to my land support. Dave was uh, just a perfect support on a daily basis where he knows me really well and I could be very emotional. So that could be detrimental. And sometimes it's okay, Cyril, snap out of it. You, you know, you can't be on a weak spot right now. This is what you have to do. And I came with new concepts along the way, you know, and, that, and that's experience. Um, I wrote a blog post about becoming unbreakable and, and, and a five-step process of um, dealing with what, what would happen. So, for instance, um, the first step would be to be aware all the time, like how to become, so I knew that. I, I'm aware of what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling. But the second step is is be very critical with yourself, where you actually tell yourself, okay, this is wrong. You you got to snap out of it. So it's not only being aware of what's happening, but also being critical. Critics, your your worst critics or your tougher critics, I should say. The third one is to listen to advice, and you know Dave could see from a different angle, and he would give me really good feedback. The fourth step would be to reframe. Okay, I, and and. For instance, when I had my one of the compartments that got flooded with water, that was a source of stress because then it would leak into my cabin and my sleeping bag got wet, wet I think it was the, the third day. And it was like, what's happening? My boat is like pristine. Why is it leaking already? And I had to deal with this and I was not ready to do it. So I had to reframe, reframe until maybe two weeks later, I was able to deal with it and create a drain to, to empty the container, uh, the compartment. Um, and then, so find, once you reframe and you say, okay, I'm ready, let's do it. Then the next step is to just to adapt and, and deliver and um, execute and, and do it. And then 
once you've done that, then either it's success or not, and then you start again the loop. But I would create my own concept, you know, of how how to deal with things along the way because it. Um, I'm really good at planning and having option A, B, and C, uh, but I never liked the unknowns or not even the unknowns, but the things that are unpredictable and that came out of the blue. Like when I had to wake up at two o'clock in the morning because my feet were wet and the water is coming in, that's a source of stress. Um, but uh, yeah, it's one problem at a time and I'm glad I, I did it, didn't give up. Me too. I'm, I was, I was totally cheering for you. I was looking out, you know, I was in Waikiki looking out into the ocean thinking, man, he's just right there. It's like, I, I almost <laughs> could have just paddled to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, 90 days is really long and anything. It is. And I think there was one crucial point, which is, I call it my second departure. It was after 10 days and I had the issue with my flooded compartment. I had issues with my batteries, issues with my steering lines. I started to be really, really tough to steer. And and then I almost said, oh, I'm only away, one week away from LA. Like maybe it's not the right time, but it's not fair. I prepared so much. So, I, you know, and then Dave said, okay, sleep over it. You're not going to take a decision right now. You're tired. And the next morning, it was really the decision that I make. Okay, I'm, I'm committed to going all the way to Hawaii. Because that's the one point where either you go to LA, it's one week, or you go the other way, and it's like two months at sea. So you were talking about the first departure from Monterey. Yes, that's one. The second one is committed to fixing all the issues one by one. And you don't know what they're going to be, but you have to trust yourself. If I don't have water, I'll have, and my water maker broke after day 46, I'll make water. If this breaks, I'll find another solution. Like trusting in yourself that, until the boat sinks, I'm not going to call for help. So, yeah, that was a big moment for me. Day 10 to 14, I have to look at my, my timeline. Uh, second departure, committing. That's that's a really important thing that you you talk about, especially, I mean, I hate to even, it's, it's not that I'm comparing this, but I think in, you know, ultra endurance races, because I was just doing that or supporting the Alabama 650 and, you know, following people and seeing how they deal with things. There's a point in that race where you get to the bay and it's like, you've been on the river for anywhere from, you know, five to six days or less. And all of a sudden you've hit, you hit these open ocean conditions and you're, you're at a point where mentally and and physically you're at your breaking point and the bay will either make or break you and that's when it's really important you know you're not thinking clearly you're questioning what the hell am i doing okay i'm only 30 40 miles from the finish line i'm not gonna make it and you're just having these irrational thoughts and it's so important for to have a support crew that will say something like you mentioned why don't you sleep on it you have time. You've got 10 days to finish this thing. Why don't you sleep on it? Because even if you got off the water and you went to a hotel and you got a nice shower and you got something to eat, you probably would still make that 10 day cutoff if you're at day seven or day eight and you're at the beginning of the bay. So I think that's extremely important to have that mentality and not jump to conclusions and decide, okay, something went wrong. You know, maybe I flipped or you know, I feel like I'm not going to make it because I feel so unstable. I'm so tired. There's no way. There's no way. Because sometimes the bay is extremely crazy. It's blowing, 
you know, 20, I, I do miles per hour. It's uh, blowing, you know, 15 to 20 miles an hour, but that doesn't mean the next morning it isn't going to be calm and you're going right. to be able to make it. So it is extremely important to be able to allow yourself to have that time to say, okay, let me step back from this chaotic situation, even though I'm not in a good headspace right now and not jump to conclusions and think about it, maybe in a couple hours or the next day. (laughs) And it happened to me many times in different races. You know, it doesn't matter how long it is. Um, There's, you know, you've done the Yukon River Quest. The first stop is after 24 hours that's where most people quit because yeah you know you're so tired exhausted you don't want to start again and then that's when you don't want to listen to your own thoughts you know you just go back in the boat take it easy and paddle easy and even though you're sore even though you're super tired you're exhausted you don't want just go and paddle and then after an hour you feel like whoa i'm doing great you know you have to have this moment where you you pass the negativity of your head and and it happened to me again in short course i did the seven bridges on the bay you know you start from one bridge and you go oh, it's 64 miles and i arrived at the golden gate and i could have done 10 minutes and stopped in south Salido and be back home half an hour later my brain was like okay i'm never gonna i wanted to be the time and okay i'm too slow I'm, I'm, I'm aching i'm hurting and why would i do another six hours you know to, to finish and that's when we call it temporisé in french which is um, give it time for a little bit, take five minutes, eat a little something, change clothes and you know, change paddle and say, okay, all right, let's go easy. And then that's it. Once you're over the hump where you don't listen to yourself, then it's, it's good again. So clothing, what, I mean, you're, you're not really in a space where you can bring a suitcase full of clothes with you. So what, what kind of stuff were you, I mean, 90 days, that's a lot. How often were you changing your clothes and what kind of clothes were you wearing? I mean, was it cold? Was it hot? What was the deal there? Um, so for the top, I went with clothes that would be quick dry and I had a good visibility. So I had one short sleeve t-shirt that would breeze really well. That was for the night. That was my dry t-shirt. And then I had a long sleeve, uh, also, also a quick dry t-shirt. And then for the first two months, while you're off the coast of California, it could be foggy and cold. And, um, you know, if, if you're wet, then the wind will make you cold. So I had uh, foul gear, like a really strong coat. And I had uh, suspenders, so long, you know, those pants all the way up to the chest. So sometimes I would use the top or sometimes just the suspenders, um, you know, those pants. Yeah. And then for the second half, um, I had to, I, I was able to change the top T-shirt. <laughs> I had just three T-shirts really, and um, and then I would go into shorts. I had shorts that were waterproof, um, so that when there's a wave coming, you know, my butt is the most important part because I'm sitting down. If I get sores and the sea salt and seawater goes there, it could get infected. So I had waterproof shorts, not swim shorts, um, and those I never washed for the for the whole um second part of the trip but it depends you know if you know the wind is going to be over 15 miles an hour i'm going to be splashed and wet so then i'll put the suspenders if it's going to be under 15 i'll just go in shorts um and i wash them every week i would take a, a full bath where i would wash myself with first seawater and and soap and then i would rinse with clear water that i made from the water maker and i'd wash my clothes as well 
Now for the, the underwear, I treated myself with one new underwear per week uh, <laughs> because it's the same, you know, having something that is not clean uh, for, uh, I could get infected very fast. And so having a brand new one is like a gift for Christmas. It's like, wow, the best thing ever. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So, and then were you wearing, so, so something interesting I learned uh, back when I was living on Oahu, when I was doing six man crossings a lot, you know, especially through the, over the Kaivi channel, um, talking about high visibility clothing and how as paddlers, we think that, you know, it's obviously smart to wear a high vis shirt so that people can see us when we're on top of the water. But once you're actually submerged, in the water, the most important high visibility item to have is actually on your head, right? Because yeah. you're, so were you wearing, I mean, did you wear a hat at all? Oh yeah, all the time. Um, I had one for the first three weeks, um, but I had an issue with them because they were really good protectors against the sun, but they were not good to breathe. Like, there's no breathability, there's no airflow. So mm. I had one, I just cut through it all around on the top. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, at that point, I just I need to make it work. So whatever I need to do, um, even at the beginning, I, I hid from the sun at all times. Uh, there's always, you know, the reflection um, on the water. Um, the first week, my my lips got completely dry, and you know, once the the layer of skin goes away, then it was okay for the rest. Uh, but yeah, I would I would the beard was good actually to hit some of the, the my face. But yeah, sunscreen like four or five, six times a day if I needed to. And there was only my hands that were would be out in the sun. And were you um, wearing gloves at all? I didn't wear any glove. I had three different kinds of gloves, you know, some like more cyclist cut cut at the fingers. I had sun gloves just for protecting from the sun. And I had other ones that were more sailing gloves, a little bit thicker on the palm. And I also had the fourth type of glove, which is the one you buy at... Uh, Home Depot or whatnot, you know, the, the garden gloves that are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are breathable on the top and kind of, um, um, you know. Um, like the rubber. The, yeah, rubber uh, on the inside. And you take yeah. them like, so that it doesn't fold. And I never wore any. And, and I think the reason is because I was switching between paddling and pedaling, it would give my hands time to dry. Uh, so I would paddle for two hours and pedal for two hours in the morning. I had a break for uh, a little nap, and then I would do paddling again and pedaling two hours. So I never had any problem with uh, my hands. Nothing. It was it was amazing. Do you ever use uh, Aquaphor or anything like that to create kind yeah. of a barrier? Uh, yeah, there's a, a cream called Pseudocream. It's a, a diaper rash uh, that I swear by, and uh, that was part of my hygiene. And like every night, I would you know put it on on every part that could have been, um, you know, uh, irritated or something, and then I included my hands. Um, I had fungus that started to grow un under my nails, and then I couldn't do much with, for it. I just, I know it happens. Uh, but I would put the pseudoclip almost everywhere, like even on uh, on my feet every night. Yeah. Interesting. The aquaphor I would do, put on my face uh, at night. Uh, just but it's a little bit greasy you know so yeah. i didn't really like to to sleep with it i felt like oh this is weird um the the pseudo cream you're white completely white because it's a white cream but 
cares? Nobody sees me, right? I know. I remember, gosh, I'm trying to think what race this was. I did this. I think it must have been the 2020 Alabama 650 and the MR340 because it was, I mean, the sun, it gets really hot. And I remember having diaper rash cream. I don't remember what brand it was, but I had somehow lost or misplaced or forgotten my sunscreen and I thought, okay, well, this has zinc in it. So I start wi- wiping diaper rash cream on my face and I've got it, you know, <laughs> everywhere else on my butt. And I thought, oh my God, I, I've gone crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like the things we do as ultra endurance athletes to, to prevent things. And I mean, we don't, whether someone sees you or not at that point, it's like, you just don't care anymore. <laughs> oh, exactly. And I wrote a blog post about this. It's like the ocean doesn't care what you wear, if you look pretty or whatnot. It's <laughs> You just have to deliver, and and I think I called the blog post that like living with no mirror, um, and and it's so fun actually to 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 think that nothing matters, just what you see from your head out. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> nobody's here to judge you, and you're back to being like a kid. You know that's a kid's life when they wake up. They're in PJs. They could go to school in PJs. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care if their hair is a mess. They'll just you know be themselves and live life. <laughs> it's cool yeah that's funny my my son he's about to turn 14 here and sometimes he's you know he's walking out the door to go to school and he's got you know crazy hair and you know he hasn't washed the milk mustache off his face and i'm like hey buddy you might want to go back in and oh, i don't care and i'm like god i wish i still had that mentality yes. <laughs> I really do. So talking about food, I know you said you you were just on the East Coast with your nutritionists and you're doing all that stuff, which is really interesting. I mean, I think it's it's cool to be able to see the way that you you started out and the way your body has changed and the way you're, you know, how the nutrition has affected you and all that stuff. Um, what 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 kind of stuff were you eating on a daily basis? Like I know you took supplements. Yeah, so for the food, you know, it's mostly freeze-dried meals. I had two freeze-dried meals. Uh, actually, in the morning, I created my own oatmeal, uh, which was part of granola that a friend made. And I had the oatmeal, one cup of oatmeal, the one-minute uh, cooking, so I could just rehydrate it. I don't have to cook it, and it will still soak the water, and it'll be fine. And that was my favorite meal, the oatmeal with the granola. And I added a scoop of MCT oil in a powder form. Um, and also one scoop of uh, powdered milk, just to have that milky. And that was a lot of calories, so it would last me until 11 in the morning. Um, <clears throat> and then I had bars, a bunch of different bars. Um, I had uh, this applesauce that I had. I really liked this. I had uh, so olives, little packs of 20 olives that I would add. I love those. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, it was just something fresh. Um, but the supplements were key, and the reason is, I, I knew I was going to lose a lot of weight, um, and I did lose 20 pounds. So it's losing muscle, losing um, fat, and, but the there was no way that I could be getting sick. So I talked to them and said, "What are the supplements that I could have for the immune system?" Um, so they, they gave me that list, and I was taking them up about 15 to 16 pills a day. That seemed to be a lot, but your body is going through in depletion um, and you don't have the fresh fruits you don't have the the greens the veggies to rebalance yourself so i, I need those um, 
the second thing I wanted to work on it was the cognitive ability. I really wanted my brain to work properly. So you know that's the omega threes, that's the turmeric to, for decreasing, you know, um, inflammation. Uh, the third one was muscle and joints recovery. So there's some powder or protein powder that I would have, and in other mix like sports recovery blend that they have. Um, yeah, th those were the, the three main things that I, I needed. And, and then we had done blood analysis, so I knew that I'm usually def def deficient in vitamin D. Um, so I knew I was not going to get any sun exposure, so I had vitamin D. And also my vitamin B12, is, I'm also usually deficient. It's just my nature. So then I had that. And it's a long list of, of supplements, but I think it was key because I, felt, I never felt sick in, in the 90 days. You could be exhausted and no cramps whatsoever because I had electrolytes. I would put electrolytes in all my water just to have a little taste uh, mm -hmm. because the water maker makes that drink that is not tasting great. I mean, you could drink it, but uh, electrolytes also you know, prevents you from having cramps and that work really well. And, and pretty much that was it. Then it's it's just Groundhog Day. You eat the same thing over and over. You might have different brands of freeze-dried meals, but it's always the same thing, kind of. Not good. I wish I had more uh, beef jerky. I bought a bit of beef jerky. Oh, there was this one brand I had. It's cooked uh, fish inside this aluminum pot pouch. Uh, it was from Patagonia Provisions. Wow, uh, it was like yeah. so good, so good. And I got only five. Um, and I had one for my birthday, one for a halfway point. But that was having anything fresh just makes it a day, day of difference. Wow, so it was your birthday out there. How was that? Oh, it's, it was perfect. Uh, Did you sing to uh, yourself? <laughs> not really. I mean, it was just another day. I'm not a big birthday guy. And, um, you know, I turned 46. And suddenly I was like, whoa, I'm getting old. I'm getting closer to 50. But but then actually to be in the middle of the, the Pacific was just very special. That's awesome. We had uh, one of my my dear friends. I don't know if you know her or not. Frances Hiscock. She just did the Alabama 650 for the first time. And the night of her birthday, there was a huge, I, I don't want to say storm, but it was just, it was very chaotic in the bay. And she actually flipped and she said she screamed out, happy birthday, Frances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Positive oh. mind. That's great. <laughs> that's cool so you know to get real real obviously what goes in must come out how did you how did you go to the bathroom when you were out there number well, one was, and number two <laughs> yeah yeah i was eating so much that i had to go three times actually so once in, that's healthy yeah yeah once in the morning uh once at lunch and once at dinner and i had this uh find this when we crossed the ocean six years ago we could have a big bucket you know the home deep orange bucket and then you can buy a, a top so you could sit actually on, on, the, on the toilet. But my boat was so tippy and so small that I, it, I didn't have place to put that big bucket. So I found this dessert bowl, bowl um, about you know the, the size of my face, not very big. And and then I you know Trader Joe's has those liners, these plastic liners, and when you put the fruits in it, and they're actually made of algae and they're biodegradable. So I would put that on the bottom and then I would do my business, the number two, and, and then toss it in the ocean. But it would be, you know, biodegraded uh, very fast. So that was okay. Um, the one thing that I was missing is the, the halfway point. 
I started to ration, so I couldn't eat as much and I was lacking fibers. So um, I had those fiber supplements, but that was not, not enough. So I had to, for the next time, I have to remember that I needed really to have fiber, more fibers to not be constipated and to have, you know, things that you have when you don't have enough fiber. So it sounds like you learned a lot more lessons, like the lessons are never ending. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I thought I had a good recipe. I had done the crossing before, but on a rowing boat, you're rowing two hours, stopping two hours, rowing two hours. And so you never sleep more than 45 minutes, but you can eat 24-7. Now on a solo, you paddle all day. And when the sun goes down for safety, I decided I never, would never paddle at night. So then I would have a long time of recovery, like 10 or 11 hours at night where I would sleep. And but I would have to wake up during the night. So I would eat because I would wake up so starved in the morning. Um, and, and what I ate as much as I wanted just before bed was not enough. I had to wake up. I would probably drink a liter of water during through the night and pee two or three times um, and eat too. I, I had to increase my, my calorie intake that night because that's when my body was replenishing. So what... So officially you're the, is it the sixth, sixth person to do solo? Yeah. Uh, if you look at the 100% um, human powered, there's four men. Uh, there's Scott Donaldson who crossed the Tasman Sea, 100% human powered kayak. There's Peter Bray who crossed the North Atlantic. Um, Alexander Doba crossed three times the Atlantic. And, and I'm the fourth one. Uh, Ed Gillette crossed solo uh, the, you know, in 1987, uh, but he used a kite. So, but he still, you know, is a legend in my eyes and he's the one who inspired me to do the same crossing. So, um, you know, I, I don't reach his ankle. Such an amazing adventure and the way he did it. I was in the middle of the Pacific and I would imagine him by my side on his double off the shelf kayak and we'd have conversations, you know, and, and um, what he did is just out of this world. Uh, you know, would lay down on his cockpit, and put a top over himself at night. I had a real cabin that was completely waterproof. You know, I had a sat phone. He had no sat phone. He had navigated with a sextant. Had a you know what he did is just mind blowing. Uh, so I, I I say you know it's obviously one of the top kayakers in the world, if not the top. Um, yeah, ocean crossing in kayaks is not not very often maybe you're the next one <laughs> you know you impress me and inspire me but not enough to do that <laughs> <laughs> i think yeah i it i definitely it scares me i'm i'm an open ocean paddler i mean i paddled in hawaii for over a decade and you know i'm used to the open ocean stuff but it's not that kind of open ocean stuff <laughs> i mean you're like wide open ocean you you don't see land so it's different i don't have any desire to do that i'm i it sounds terrifying and i'm so <laughs> impressed and i'm so stoked that you you know you you were able to to accomplish your goals. And it's just that, that alone to me is just so inspiring that, you know, you, you didn't let your failures per se, cause we're not calling them failures, um, inspire you to, to look at it differently and go at it and say, okay, you know, these are the mistakes I made, you know, I'm going to fix them and 
going into it knowing that you're obviously going to make more mistakes, but you're still going to learn from them. And the, these are lessons that you can carry with you, not only through sports, but through life, through relationships and, you know, situations with jobs and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I'm always telling my son, you know, how important it is to to look at the crossover between sports and life. I mean, it's really you can look at them both like they're it's a partnership. Yeah. So what I would say is you remember well that the last podcast we had together, the last question you asked was like, is there anything you fear or anything you you know? And mm-hmm. I think I said, well, I hope I'll be up to the task because I had prepared all I wanted, but never know that well, will I be strong enough mentally? Will I be able to do all this? And just to remind listeners that even you know, everybody has doubts. Even the best performers have doubts. And I'm glad I, I was up to the task and that I, you know, pushed my own batteries to make it happen. But it could have went gone the other way. There's many, many chances. So many things can go wrong in such a crossing. But it doesn't have to, det- it can't deter you from trying. Um, yeah, and, and then the crossover for what you're saying about between adventures and life. Um, there's a post I, I wrote about um, when I, before I did my first crossing, a friend said, Cyril, it's going to be really hard what you're going to do, but remember that you chose to be in this. You're, you're the one who put yourself in that situation. And there's people that are fighting battles that didn't choose to live that. And it's really harder for them because it's it could be, you know, chronic, chronic disease or something happening or some really big pain in, in life. And they have to deal with it, but they didn't choose to fight that battle. Uh, so by putting myself into those situations, I think I'm preparing myself in some ways for what life will throw at me in the future. Maybe I'll have a chronic disease myself, or maybe I'll have something I have to deal with, and whatever I've done in the past will help me go through that, hopefully. Incredible. So impressive, and you're just so inspiring. And, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope to see you do more inspiring things. What's next for you? Other than uh, rest and recovery. <laughs> no, no, this year, well, I, uh, I was thinking of doing the Yukon again, but it depends on the timing. Uh, I might go to Europe at the time. So I was also thinking of Texas Water Safari that I have not done. So those, um, uh, in brackets, uh, small races. Uh, and I think I'll go for a bigger expedition in two years. Uh, okay. Uh, I think the sweet spot for me would be like a month and a half and two months maximum. I think the three months... Um, you know, there's a correlation between how much you suffer and how much the joy you have, you harvest at the end. You know, if, if you do the Molokaihoe, it's six hours you suffer, but you have a pleasure that is uh, you know, correlated to the intensity of the suffering. So I think there's a sweet spot. Maybe races of four or five days are just the best because then you recover pretty fast after that. You know, two weeks after, and you, you could do another race. Uh, one month, you can go into that spiritual journey and learn other things there's not just about this that race so maybe something in months months and a half could be great um i've got many ideas but i prevent myself from rebounding too fast and so <laughs> yeah just write it all down that's what i do i just yeah. write it all down and then i can you know i can look at at least i have something in front of me to look at rather than my mind just going crazy 
I would love to do the Yukon again. I'd be, I'd be stoked to see you there. I don't know if it's going to happen next year, but you know, I want to do the Yukon, but maybe not as a race. I, I would like to do the Yukon 2000 from source to sea. Um, you know, I either alone or with someone. Um, but that's, that's something that I really want to want to do. If I were to go on, you know, some sort of expedition, if that's what you want to call it, that's what I would want to do is, is that, but I have a long time of preparing physically and mentally for that. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think for me too, not racing and just being on my own pace and enjoying the moment is, is going to be f- crucial for the future. I, do, I did three times a Yukon, one in the six men, one four men, and one two men. And the one I preferred the, the most was the two men because we said, okay, you know, we'll stop. If we need to stop 15 minutes and stretch our legs, we'll do it. And the fact that we didn't pressure ourselves because, you know, the C2, it's the main category in, in Canada. I mean, all the best paddlers are on the C2. So we were not going to be first three anyways. And I went with my friend Galen of C-Trek and, and he signed on like two weeks before we left. And I said, no, we're going to go for the adventure. And that's the one I enjoy the most. It was uh, really just, you know, be here, here for each other, enjoying the, the view. We would still paddle hard, don't get me wrong. You know, we do our best. Yeah. But we would give ourselves a break if, if we needed one. And that was enjoyable. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time. I know you have a lot of interviews that you've done. Hopefully you're not too burnt out. I know that you, you know, you said you're an extrovert and you love sharing, but you know, you're very well-spoken and I really appreciate you, you coming on here and sharing your experience. Uh, One last thing I guess I would ask you is what is your advice for someone who is, you know, looking into doing this crossing that you just did and maybe they're you know they're just they don't want to pull the pull the trigger like what what would your advice to them be um do it with a team first uh any crossing somebody who has done it before uh, is just increasing the learning curve much faster like my i couldn't have done that without having done it before in the four-man rowing boat just because when it's stormy the guy whom you're with has lived it before. I said, okay, this is what we do in these conditions. And this is what we do for our food and sleeping. And, you know, I've learned so much from my first crossing. So I would do that first, get some experience and then try to do it solo if it's your thing, but you can't fake it. You can't say I'm going to do it solo if you don't feel it. You have to feel like you have, you're capable of doing it. And also the other thing is sometimes you get in love with the idea of what that adventure could be, but you haven't done it before. And once you're in it, it's like, why did I do that? I actually don't enjoy it. So make sure that what you're going for is something you really enjoy, not just the idea of being in the middle of the ocean or crossing and making it. Um, but yeah, for me, the ne- next month, I'm going to do a tour in the whole California in January um, from San Diego all the way to Seattle, making like 10, 15 stops and trying to speak uh, and I'll find a place where I could have a room, gather 50 people and talk about the adventure. So whoever's listening to that and, and you know, follow that. I want to be a full adventurer all the time. So I'm, I'd, I'd like to be a coach like you and, and help people <laughs> doing, you know, their own endurance um, and also um, be a speaker for companies and stuff. So that'll be my, my next challenge is try to move to be a full-time adventurer. And when is this, you said, in January? The whole January, yes. Right? Uh, early January, I'll start from Seattle, so from San Diego, 
and I'll go up the coast, you know, um, okay. beach, Oceanside, uh, and then Santa Barbara up to uh, Monterey, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver. Uh, I don't know if I'll do it with my boat. That'd be great to have my boat behind and just <laughs> gather everyone, you know, and then let's, you know, let's speak about this adventure. That'll be for the whole January. Well, you'll have to let me know because I'm headed back down to Mexico tomorrow and uh, I'll be down there until probably mid-January and then I'll be living in Portland Oh, that's nice. when I'll be there, yeah. Yeah, so you're, you'll have nice to let time. me know. I'll be here and if you need anything, you know, my my whole family's here, so. <laughs> yeah, no, sounds good. Um, sounds like a plan. I think it might be at the end of January. Uh, and then I'll make a push all the way to, to Seattle and Vancouver. Awesome. So paddlers in Vancouver, I'll cross the border and, and talk to those Canadians. Yeah, you know, there there's a huge paddling community in the Pacific Northwest. And it's interesting because I feel like they're almost in, they're kind, they, they're kind of forgot, not forgotten about, but it's like people don't realize there's such a huge paddling community, but we're just, we're kind of in a bubble almost. It's yeah. weird. <laughs> but I'm excited to to kind of get into that bubble because I mean I haven't I haven't paddled I mean I didn't grow up paddling so when I left Oregon when I was 18 19 and you know moved to Cali and then went over to Oahu uh, that's when I started the passion for paddling so it's going to be really cool to be able to come back to Oregon where there's these you know I just recently did um, 150 miles of the Willamette River Trail with the Willamette Sea Willamette scenic river trail which is absolutely breathtaking oh really uh, oh my gosh it's just it's something that everyone should do uh it's it's fairly easy i mean you do have to have some water knowledge i mean you couldn't just rent a kayak from walmart and think you're gonna yeah. nail it <laughs> there's a bit of navigation uh there but i mean the wilderness you know bald eagles and deer and beavers and all kinds of ospreys um it's absolutely amazing so i'm I'm very excited to explore what I would call my own backyard that I really, yep. you know, I mean, I grew up fishing and being on a drift boat and camping and all that, but actually being a paddler and living in Oregon, I'm really excited because there's a lot of bodies of water to explore here and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm you on that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks for joining us and uh, congratulations and very proud of you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Well, I hope <laughs> to see you soon. But uh, January, well, we'll make it happen. Okay, for sure. Keep in touch. Okay, we'll do. Bye. Thanks a <laughs> Bye. lot. If you want to know more about The Crossing, make sure you check out Cyril's blog. I've added the link in the episode bio. Also, be sure to check out his podcast, I Really Want to Do This, available on all platforms. If you're looking for guidance to reach your goals and change your mindset for your next adventure, you can also book Cyril on his website. I hope you all enjoyed this two-part episode, and remember, if you missed the pre-crossing episode, you can find it on Season 1, Episode 7. Until next time, see you all out there on the water. Safe and happy paddles. Aloha. Aloha.